listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Nouvelle. It's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. Or at least it doesn't have to be. With the help of experts across industries, Dirk helps you find your passion and career, as well as exposing the unknown parts of every vocation. Let's go deep. Let's find your genius zone right now. Here's Dirk Nivelle. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is Dirk Nivelle. And on with me, uh, the formal name is Paul Arnston, but I've always known him as Crack. Uh, and he'll tell you the story behind that name. But, you know, I've talked to Paul before recently, a crack recently. And, you know, I said this to him and I want to say it again. It's like when I was little, you know, those are really and this is a little off topic, but I think it's important is you meet people in your life that are instrumental and like, you know, you could call them heroes. You could just whatever. You just look up to them. And crack was one of those guys that came into my life when I was in elementary school and I was fortunate enough to, you know, have a family that paid my way to take ski lessons. And so I somehow got hooked up with the Skiing Unlimited, Breezin. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but like we were one busload of students and crack, a guy named Drew Merklinghouse. I mean, there was six or seven of these guys that were just world-class studs, skiers, great dudes. And so I got exposed to like world-class freestyle skiing at an early age. And I remember the Bonanza Bombers, Drew and Paul, or I keep saying Paul, sorry, Crack, would wear these uh, vests and they we try to chase them down Bonanza. And I'd never seen people ski the bumps the way they did. And then they would pull these little flips in the middle of a bump field. And at that time, I'm like, huh, I want to be like those dudes. But anyway, uh, and so, you know, life went on and I lost touch a little bit, but, you know, I stayed in touch. And I just really excited to have crack on. He's, he's one of those guys that he's, he's really extraordinary in terms of as a guy and what he's done in his career. He's, he's been on the forefront of a lot of apparel uh, companies uh, taking off and I'm honored to have him on. So I'll stop yapping. Uh, crack, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Dirk. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll start off. Uh, Formally, my full name is Paul Bradford Crack Arnson, which is a mouthful. And I just use the last half, Crack Arnson. And uh, Crack is spelled K-R-A-K. It's the good Norwegian spelling, not the South American drug <laughs> spelling. So, uh, and it uh, uh, goes with the Nordic heritage that uh, my family has. So, yeah. All right. I will try to... Stop saying I, I, I do that sometimes, but okay. So, so people are tuning. People are tuning in, and they want to know. I mean, some don't know who you are, obviously, and they're coming to you because of your your background in apparel. So, like, if you're on a plane and you're going somewhere, and someone sits next to you and asks you, "What do you do?" Like, how do you respond? Uh, I'm in the clothing company. I'm in the clothing industry or the apparel industry. Uh, I have a clothing company, simple terms. Okay. Do you like, would you say you specialize in a specific type of apparel? Because knowing you the way I know you. Outdoor and sports. Okay. But Um, some folks begin to think team sports. So depending, you know, if I'm flying out of Reno, it, uh, they'll say, oh, you know, you've been in the apparel industry. 
what uh, what areas, what categories? Well, then they sound like they're a little bit more. And I'll say, well, I've done a lot of work in snow sports and surf, uh, and I'm currently in outdoor sports and marine sports apparel. Okay. Well, before we go too far, like if people are looking at your background with all those hats, I mean, let's yes. touch on, let's touch on that a little bit. I mean, that's one of your latest projects, your company, and you know. Knowing the way I know you, you you've been really good at developing a product based off of needs and like even comfort, like with freestyle skiing, the ability, you know, when people are jumping to lift their arm and like you really take into consideration the functionality and the you know how a product is gonna withstand the test of time. It seems like you've done it again with hats. Tell us a little bit about this new uh, adventure that you're involved with. It it is, and uh, it's interesting. I, we, I actually started this 30 years ago. And uh, and first of all, this is a family business. Uh, I've been on the planet for a while now and I've retired from corporate, much to my uh, family's joy. And so we wanted to stay in the apparel industry uh, and I wanted to do something. Uh, and uh, we had started on this like 30 years ago. And I, I should say I started on it 30 years ago is before I met my wife. Uh, but but uh, I was working with a company called Helihan, a consulting firm in the apparel industry. Uh, we worked with a lot of top global brands on their product development. I was working with Heli Hansen at the time. They had asked us to do, uh, amongst other things, we were doing their contemporary snow sports collection, but they'd asked us to do uh, a line of marine caps that were fashionable. And so uh, we did that. And on the other side, we were also working with North Sails, which is in sailing, like sailboats and windsurfing and those type of sports. And so we were doing some things there. And as, as, as I went into it, uh, I was thinking as a sailor and as a windsurfer that caps should float and hats should float. You shouldn't have a cap that comes off your head and then it sinks. Not great for the environment, but also you maybe want to get that cap back. So... As I was working on these different programs, I started to work with a foam supplier and create a non-absorbent foam that we could put into caps and hats. So it would go into the bill of the cap so the cap would float. We could put it into a full brim hat so the hat would float and you could still have some protection. So that was the idea. Uh, at the time, the president of Helly Hansen was like, wait, wait, let me get this. You're sailing along. Yep. The cap blows off your head. Yep. Cap in the water. Yep. And the cap floats and you get it back as opposed to sinking. I go, yeah, that's the idea. But if it sinks, they have to buy another cap. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> okay. I thought to myself, We'll just let this one be. I should do this on my own. So uh, yeah. started on it and then uh, got married, hatched a couple of kids, 
went way deeper into corporate work and the whole floating hat and cap thing went on the back burner for almost 30 years. So uh, after retiring from corporate, we took a look at it again. And I thought, you know, there's something else we need in sailing and windsurfing and surf and now kite surfing and foiling and, and these great marine sports and that I participate with. But there's also fishing and powerboating and wakeboarding. And that is, is sun protection. And the main problem with hats, full brim hats that provide great sun protection is they don't do it in velocity conditions. So if you're in a powerboat speeding along to your favorite fishing spot, you're gonna wear a cap. It's gonna stay on your head. You can cinch it down, but a big brim hat is gonna flop around. Same thing with sailboat racing, windsurfing, and these other dynamic action sports. So I had an idea about how to, both from a standpoint of aerodynamics and engineering, engineer the same sort of things we see in windsurf sails and sailboat sails that make them stable and airplane wings and bring that into a full brim hat with other componentry and make it stable. So our goal was if we can make a hat stable in up to 25 knots. That's really gonna change the dynamic of where you can wear a full brim hat and get some protection. Um, and yeah, so real quick, but people, like I told them you were, you know, world-class freestyle skier, but you're also very an avid sailor, uh, sailor man. I don't know how you, you sailing. I know that's a big part of your life. A sailor. So yeah. 30 years ago, you were thinking about this, but you know, sailing, and I know you you go pretty quick and fast on these boats. Is that a problem? I mean, do you see hats flying off people and, and all of that good stuff? Oh, yeah. 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 So we have a, a, a testing team member, uh, and, and this has to do with windsurfing, but, you know, sailboat racing has advanced. Okay, so now you've got the boats like in the America's Cup, they're going you know, 50, 60 miles an hour, even faster on America's Cup boats. It, it's crazy. You know, they have to wear helmets. So you see the guys in Red Bull helmets and stuff like that. It's dangerous. And regular sailboats, we have a lot of planing. So uh, the sailboats we're sailing on that my family uh, is sailing on, uh, it's not uncommon for us to be going 20 knots of speed. and and that's fast on a sailboat. Uh, and there's a lot of wind blowing. So you turn around, you go back upwind, maybe you're sailing into 30 knots of breeze and you're also going six, seven knots up into the wind. Your apparent wind is somewhere in the like 35 knots of speed. It may not sound like a lot to someone yep. riding in a convertible car, but it's, it's fast speed on a rough watery surface. And what's interesting is like, I'm thinking about hats, like some people wear them for fashion, your hats, I have them, they look really good, but you. Yeah. Some, you know, sometimes it's just to get the sun out of your eyes, but like sometimes people have skin issues, right? With just, you know, skin cancer, whatever. I mean, yeah, you have to, it's like a, it's a non-negotiable, like you need to protect yourself. You need to, so it's not like, Hey, I just want a hat that I look good in. You need a hat that keeps you alive. And so it's cool because I've never seen a hat like this. And by the way, 
uh, what's the, you know, if you want to buy them, I know you can go to your website, tell the audience, like, how are you find these hats right now? Oh, well, okay. So you're up in state of Washington, uh, fisheries supply in downtown Seattle on Lake Union there. Uh, they carry our product as does urban surf, uh, there also. So if you're on the side of uh, foiling, windsurfing, kite surfing, stand-up paddle, you'd be going to Urban Surf. If you're in the power boating, fishing, sailboating, commercial fishing side, you'd be uh, going to Fisheries Supply. Uh, they, or on, they, online too, right? Uh, Can't you go to your website and buy these? We're, yeah, we're online with Arnson Marine, which is our marine brand, and Tahoe Blue Gear, which is our mountain and resort brand. Right on. Okay, cool. And the thing, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about this, it makes me think of the story you told me. So let's go back in time a little bit. And, and yeah. I'd love to walk through um, your different stops along the way and get into the weeds on, you know, one thing I found fascinating and I'm thinking about people that want to get into apparel. It's like, there's a lot of flavors, you know, there's a lot of skill sets that are, that comprise an apparel company, everything from, you know, the creative to the patterns and the fabric and the functionality and the sourcing of the materials and the selling of it and trying to figure out which market is hot. But back in the day when you had little uh, dudes like me trying to follow you around um, on the hill and, you know, you're a taller guy um, and you're slim. I think those are your words. I think you're very handsome, good looking guy, but I'm trying to remember how you phrased it. Um, you had a hard time finding um, ski outfits that fit and not only fit, but look good because freestyle, it's part of looking good. When you're skiing the bumps and you want all the patterns and the colors and the stripes, whatever to align. Um, but you had a hard time finding things, you know, when you're doing jumps and you need, you know, the sleeves and the arms to be cut. So you're not pulling away. You, you, design your own stuff. So walk us through that because that was kind of in, I mean, maybe your genius zone before you even knew it, like you were interested in it and you got deep on like A to Z, like, you know, stitching and all the things that, you know, are part of apparel. And that was kind of your, your introduction into the business, I think. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with, you know, all of us as people, we come you know, we come with attributes and deficits that are built into our DNA. Um, and uh, being tall and skinny and, you know, I was six foot two, 145 pounds when I graduated high school. So, you know, it was tough to find ski wear. But, uh, but as a kid, uh, I'm the son of a Boeing aeronautics engineer. And, uh, and I inherited that sort of engineering architectural type of uh, 3D mind and DNA and a love to, to innovate, build, improve things. So that kind of came along with, with my package. And it was in the 1970s when I was in high school. And I was graduating and I was competing in freestyle. It's a judge sport. So what you wear is extremely relevant. If you look geeky, you score geeky. You know, if you look hot, you score hot. So uh, these things are important. And I, and I was growing like a weed. And man, it was tough to find anything that fit me. So 
this was the do your own thing era in the 70s. Everyone was kind of doing something. Some guys were making leather belts and other folks were throwing clay pots. And, and I decided to try and make myself some ski wear. So I had sewing skills. Uh, my mom taught me when I was a kid, little kid, learned to sew. And so I was not intimidated by it. To me, it was another craft, like using a power saw or cutting lumber or welding steel. So I dove into it, uh, made some things that, you know, the first thing I, I cobbled together was more of an experiment of pulling another uh, ski jacket apart and looking at the pattern pieces and then reassembling it and changing some things on it. It, it was absolutely horrible looking, but it gave me enough insight to create a true pattern and, and build another little ski shell jacket that actually looked okay. And then I went forward from there and uh, a few folks liked it. So I sold a couple and traded some for this and that, some ski equipment. And, and then I decided to make like a real full ski out, full bib and, and top and insulated. And that was, that was quite the endeavor. And after I was done with that, I was pretty pleased. I was warm. Uh, I cut in all kinds of mobility here, which back then, uh, almost everything you could buy was kind of cut like a suit. So it didn't have a lot of mobility. And they would add mobility by putting in stretch panels of knit that would allow a lot of air or water to come and go. Uh, it wouldn't keep you very warm and dry. So, so for myself, I innovated what we called this action arm panel. Uh, some companies were later would copy that and call it a, a, a rocker arm panel. But essentially, it gave you plenty of, of arm movement. So if you're doing aerial acrobatics and you were flipping and spinning, your arms were not pulled at the side. And yeah, you could still be out in cold weather. You could be protected without having a lot of stretch panels that would let air and water through. So I built one of those, built it for myself, went out and skied in it. Guy came up to me and said, hey, I really love that outfit. Where'd you get it? I made it. Oh, but I want one. Make one for me. I'm like, no, it's way too much work. Well, I'll pay a top-notch price for just like buying a ski outfit right out of the ski store. And I thought about that and I was like, really? Yeah. And I thought, well, gosh, I can make a little chunk of change on that. And, you know, that can get me to the regional championships. So made that outfit. He went out. was very pleased. Four people came back, made them outfits. And then all of a sudden it turned into this uh, cottage industry business. I hired a bunch of women to work on their sewing machines out of their home would cut things, do it all customized for people, whatever the height, weight, length they wanted, colors, all that. And then eventually that turned into a full-blown regular brand business that uh, you knew as uh, Breezen Ski and Sportswear. So you started that and then did you bring on guys like Drew, like midway, right away? How did that work? Yeah, uh, Drew Merklinghaus became a became a partner there, uh, and and some other people. 
in in time. And uh, uh, Drew and I were kind of the dynamic duo of of the bunch. We we were both coming from skiing and both coming as competitors and as professional skiers, uh, which really accelerated the the promotional side of the product we were doing. And the product was extremely innovative and it was cutting edge fashion for that time coming from very youthful uh, people in their young twenties, a whole new sort of look and and type of garment being innovated and introduced to uh, the snow sports industry at the time. So it really, it really took off. Uh, I mean, I remember just Christmas, like my dad, my dad was kind of funny that way. Like he was a pilot. He'd go to Korea and buy like seven fake Rolexes or like seven pairs of tennis shoes because he'd go broke saving money. You know, when he found a deal, he would just, but I remember like one Christmas, he got me like three or four of your breeze and pullovers. And it was my favorite gift. And I mean, everyone had these, it was the three, uh, and you know, even companies nowadays like aviator nation and Marine layer. I mean, you see it coming back, but I feel like you guys were kind of the innovators of that look. Um, which kind of leads into the next area. Like, you know, so you were in that world for a while that took off. And what's fascinated me about our conversations before were, and I think this is really good for people to clue into that are watching is, you know, if you're interested in apparel or fashion, there are a lot of different skill sets that are comprised within a company, right? I mean, you have, and, and I'll let crack kind of articulate those, but I was blown away at all the things that go into it. And so very different personality types, you know, maybe you're an introvert and you're quiet, but you're super creative. And I mean, it seems like there's a lot of opportunities. And then the second part that I would love you to talk about is the brands like different, like if you're working for a small brand versus a large brand, you know, it might be a totally different gig, meaning like a totally different experience of being super creative versus having to play it safe and just, you know, this is what you do. Sorry. There's not a lot of room to be you. You got to be this way. And like freestyle, like we're all used to like just going down the mountain and getting crazy and doing whatever we want. It's free. And so the freedom almost in apparel can be limited by the brand you work with. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, let's start off, uh, uh, let's see, your first thing was positions in the industry. Yeah. So, so like any other industry where you're building products, uh, you have sometimes what they call R, D, and D, research, design, and development, or uh, uh, design and development of, of apparel products, you know, which is, which is that area. Uh, you also have uh, uh, merchandising, business strategy, uh, business development. It goes under a, a variety of, of names, uh, product uh, direction. But this has to do with the, the strategy of what kind of product are we going to build for the marketplace? What kind of product is appropriate for the type of company we are, our brand position, uh, what our customers expect us uh, to bring them. Uh, there are the production roles, 
the management of production, the acquisition of raw materials and componentry, the logistics of all that, you know, getting that uh, to the market. And uh, there, of course, is sales uh, and and all your other managerial and administrative duties that that go along marketing and and things that are typically not too different from company to company and you know different types of of products whether you're doing dishwashers or or you're doing apparel but uh I'll steal back to uh design and development uh there are in a big company there's a very diverse amount of roles but but your basics are is that there is a process of selection of materials and componentry what type of fabrics does someone have a vision about using or what type of fabrics are being used uh, in that category of product and what type of fabrics might be available to create uh, to have a mill work on so there's there's the fabrics there's the componentry portion then there is the silhouette development the actual if if we take snow sports for example there's there's the the look of it the cut is it wide is it drapey is it long is it short and tight is it you know body hugging you know what what is the silhouette sort of development of it and then uh the styling does it have stripes is it solid are the zippers a big event of contrast look or are they hidden and 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 it's a just a one color everything just looks very simple uh type of jacket so uh pocketing hoods componentry functions closures powder skirts inside pockets venting all these sort of engineering features that type of thing yeah i mean and in like in the first component you're talking about sourcing materials like you also got to be cognitive of like let's say gore-tex is hot and then gore-tex in the next season is getting phased out with a different material so you have to be um you have to look forward right to understanding the trends there's there's trends and there's technologies and and the i'm going to say that um if you're talking about uh, sportswear, like the plaid shirt you're wearing right now, uh, that's much more about trend and and the nuances of the fabrications. Uh, you know, is it soft? Is it thin? Is it thick? Does it have texture? Does it, it you know, is it a, a yarn dyed? Is it printed? There's a lot of trends and changes that happen with the fashion of, of sportswear. In outdoor apparel, it tends to be a bit more functional oriented, and it tends to be more about the technologies, the protection that's being provided, in, uh, the relevancy to the type of weather conditions. Uh, are you in surf and you want something that's hydrophobic, that dries quickly? Are you in the mountains? Do you need insulation? 
or do you need a lot of venting because you're in a highly aerobic activity uh, like uh, skinning and touring up up a mountain? Um, or yeah. uh, are you uh, doing something uh, like maybe you're hunting, you're laying around in the winter in the snow uh, or fishing and, and you need something to be actually you know, very warm uh, for an activity that is, is uh, not inducing a lot of heat coming from your body. So you need a lot more insulation and things like things like that. So yeah. interesting. I'm just thinking of something. So would a company want to be uh, a, a player in each of those flavors? Like, or do they just pick a lane and say, we're going to be the best in the ski and snowboarding? You know, that's our niche. Or do they try to be the best in the hunting and the water sport? I, or is it better just to kind of stick in your lane? Well, that's, that's sort of a, that, that's a question that <laughs> any type of, any type of company might uh, argue about, but uh, my point of view on that is that um, there are, if you specialize in technical outerwear, you can branch that into a variety of fields, but but they tend to be, there tends to be fields like if you're in mountain sports and you're in outerwear, you might cover climbing, snow sports, skiing and snowboarding. Uh, you may uh, do marathon running. Uh, you might dip into maybe some paddle or water sports a little bit because you've developed this expertise in technology and assembly in design and engineering with technical outerwear. And so you can, you can take that and put it into other sports. If you're, let's say more in the hunting and fishing arena, uh, you you're probably going to be focused in those areas. Uh, there typically is less, I'm going to say, adrenaline activity and action sport is usually not a part of hunting and fishing. So, so the usage of the technologies in those sports tend to be different and the needs tend to be different. And so you may specialize, you might be in fishing or you might be in hunting and you might spread out between those uh, in, your, in your product selection. But generally, you're not going to find a company that's going to do, let's say, hunting apparel and snow sports apparel. That's, that's two different mindsets, two different end usages. Uh, so, so we see some companies like uh, I'm going to say Helly Hansen that do both uh, commercial fishing and recreational boating, uh, sailing and power boating. And they also do snow sports. Of course, they're Norwegian based. So they're really attending to Norwegian lifestyle as a start, which engages all that. But that happens to end up 
later on as time goes on globally, there's quite a crossover between recreational sailors and, and skiers. There's a huge crossover there, participation in those two sports. So uh, that's a company where they've kind of taken two worlds that seem like they're apart, but they actually are connected. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of thinking in the mind of a young adult that's coming out of school that's really into apparel or they think they are and they want to get into it. I'm trying to help them like in their mind um, define the, the right direction. So, I mean, on one hand, like if you're if you gravitate towards fishing and that's what you love, it feels like going with a, a, a brand that specializes in that is is good. If you're someone who's really creative and you want to say, and maybe a smaller brand where you have more roles uh, versus a large brand. Can you talk, can you speak to kind of your experience? You don't have to go into super depth, but name the companies you worked with. And then was there a, a stark contrast between each one, like based on the size and, and I, you know, ultimately I kind of want to, I'm trying to understand too, what the crack sweet spot is. Like you have a, a wealth of knowledge and experience in all these different components of the business, but where is your genius zone? You know, and maybe we start with that. Like, what was it about you that made you exceptional in this world? Cause I know you're a humble guy and I know you've done extraordinary things in the business. Uh, you helped brands take off, but what, what, what is it about that? Like what, why were you so good at what you did? or do okay well that's uh thank you for, <laughs> thanks for the compliment um so i think that in the beginning okay it it i didn't have any special love for clothing uh, i've i had creative skills i like to build things i like the idea of of creating something um and whether that's uh, architecturally designing a house or, or uh, uh, creating a, a film and, uh, or as it turned out, uh, creating apparel for action sports and snow sports and stuff. So what, what got me there was initially, I'm going to say, an intuitive sense for trend. And not just what was happening, like, oh, this is trendy and cool, but more so this, if we do this, it will become trendy and cool. And that has always seemed to be something that I brought to the party as a, as a special skill set with the, with the brands I've worked with. So that, that sort of knows for what what could happen in the future and what do people really want to wear on their body and that's kind of a key phrase because apparel and clothing is all about that it's all about what someone wants to wear on their body because a lot of products are made and folks go into the store and they're like eh, i don't really want to wear that goes back on the rack and then something else like oh you know i could wear that um and for me, I tended to be a lot better at the, you know, I think a lot of people would want to wear this on their body. And, and, 
have been kind of successful on that standpoint. The other thing I would say is is sort of the the math profitability uh, involved with the business. I've always been good at at creating products that that uh, have a reasonable sense of profitable return to them, so that uh, it's not a rude surprise when. You build 10,000 of them, it's like, oh, wait, but we're not making any money on this. Well, no. So uh, you have to be careful about your component trees and the cost of doing everything, shipping, all these all these other things that add into it. And, and that seems to have served me well. So so those, I'd say those two things have, you know, the ability to, to sniff out what the future is going to bring in trend uh, and apply it into what someone's going to wear on their body and then being able to make it at a profit. Just curious, like, are you more drawn to like, maybe, the, maybe it's 50, 50, but like the look or the functionality, how it feels like, do you feel like you gravitate towards a different direction? I, I definitely have been more function, hmm. but I am sensitive about the look. So, so it's, I, I've wanted the function needed the function uh and then it's and then the next part is how do you make that look cool but still deliver and that and that's that that's a tough those things sometimes are opposing each other you know it's tough to to get them to hook up yeah no i get it um one thing i don't want to forget about and miss out on and, and we don't have to get super specific but i think it's an important part is compensation um like people need to know what they're getting themselves into. People have a uh, expectation on lifestyle. And I'm guessing the different roles or divisions within an apparel company, you know, may pay different. Uh, maybe one's hourly, maybe it's salary, maybe one's commission-based. Is there a lot of volatility or variety in how somebody might get paid if they went to get into the apparel industry? There, there is. And it, it's been a bit of a changing uh, landscape, definitely, in the amount of time, the decades I've I've been in in the industry. But uh, first, I'm going to say that there are a lot of outdoor people, sports-minded people. There's there's this whole side of of outdoor sports, action sports, um, where there's a lot of function, a lot of usage. Uh, people come into that that are very passionate about about adding their vision uh, to increasing the function or the aesthetics uh, or the or embracing the new technologies to take things up up the another ladder run and and that industry does not pay as well as the what we might refer to as the more sportswear ready to wear industry. So if, if we take a look at kind of traversing from, let's say like a, a company like Heli Hansen, the North Face Patagonia, which are all very outdoor oriented. And then you kind of come to a company like Eddie Bauer, which embraces both outdoor but also kind of leisure outdoor lifestyle you know they sell a lot of denim and and casual pants and shirts and 
plaid and flannel and stuff like that and, and home furnishings. Uh, and then you get over into full-on sportswear where you have the Gap, the Abercrombie and Fitch, Old Navy, Forever 21, uh, all these different sportswear brands, uh, you know, from denim fashion, but just your daily wear for school, work, college, all that, all that type of stuff. That ready to wear sportswear. So you definitely have, uh, uh, if if you're an individual and, and you like the apparel industry and you're looking to get into the apparel industry, uh, there is more money over on that sportswear ready to wear side. Uh, generally, the very large brands or the huge chains of stores have a lot more to spend on personnel. Uh, they also have a lot of introductory positions that people can get started with and work in a small capacity in a, in a very narrow set of responsibilities. Uh, whereas if you're maybe in a startup brand in outdoor sports like climbing or, or a surf company or something like that, uh, you're probably going to have your hands into everything. And, and, and by that, I'm going to take kind of the next step, which is when, when you're looking at product development, you're looking at this wall behind me, you can't tell this, but our, our particular hat products have a lot of components in them. They have a lot of matching color components. They're very complex. So they're not like a normal cap you might buy in the store. Uh, they have a lot more complexity to the coordination of all the components, you know, colors and customization. So if you're, let's say, a designer working with a small brand like ours, you're working with the design of the labels, the quality of the weaving of the labels, uh, the trims that are selected, the the foam that goes inside the bills of the caps and the hats. And, you know, are there going to be stainless steel on the eyelets? What type of shock cord is being used and what quality of cord and what size and density? Uh, all There's a lot of little details. But if you're working over with a large company like, let's say, Patagonia, the North Face, the Gap, Levi's, one of these, you can get an entry-level position where all day long, all you do is work with jean buttons. And, oh, here's a new design for a, a jean button, or here's a new design for a woven label. I'm the gal who does woven labels, or I'm the guy who does rivets for, for the jeans. And we got to approve these rivets that are coming in from this factory location and this factory location and this different supplier here and examine them and approve them. Uh, you may just work with embroideries. Uh, we, uh, at the North Face had people that their full-time job is just matching color swatches. Here comes in a fabric. This is the North Face red. Here's our North Face red standard. 
Here's the new fabric that just came in from a mill. How well did they dye that red? Does it match? Do I reject it? Do I accept it? So uh, you can get a lot of, of, of uh, high-end experience with big brands, but in a very narrow field. And with smaller brands, you get a much bigger spread of the entire composition, but not as much special specified experience in each component or step of the process. Yeah, like a startup company. And by the way, if you saw my yes. eye, if you saw my eyes, you cut out for about 20 seconds, just froze. So I wasn't like, oh, I wasn't uh, drifting off. I was uh, just watching to see if my video was going to freeze. But you came back. I think we're fine on that. Um, but one one thing, um, like you're so you worked at K2, Helly yeah. Hansen. Yes. And what were some of the other brands? Uh, Scott Sports. Okay. Uh, which uh, was actually out of Switzerland. They had, they the had been purchased and moved to uh, Switzerland for their base. Uh, okay. North Face. Uh, we Helly Hansen was a client, uh, and so after I, I spent a few years in the fashion denim industry. And after that, I opened an agency and, and we worked with a lot of actual global brands. So we worked with K2, we worked with Burton, we worked with uh, Lang, uh, JD Sun Valley was not a global brand, they were a national brand, but uh, we serviced an awful lot of brands. And, and through that process, Helly Hansen became a client as did uh, Scott Sports. Uh, we did a couple different folks like O'Brien Water Skis and HO Water Skis, uh, a variety of, of different sports brands that we serviced as an agency with apparel development responsibilities. And uh, right, and would would you say though, like different brands? But would you say there was a, a, was it different? Like was it a different experience with each brand, or were there was it? pretty consistent uh it, it's it can be a very different experience with each brand each brand's got its own uh i'm going to say uh first of all they have their product culture uh which can be more similar uh but then they all have their internal sort of business and political culture uh which which can be different uh i worked with Helly Hansen as an outside agency, but we were just a few miles from the company. And uh, I worked extremely intimately uh, with them and, and pretty exclusively for several years. So it was, it was very close to being like an employee, although, although we were a, a contracted agency. Okay. So let's just, I mean, not to, I'm just, curious because this is how my brain works so if somebody wants to make a lot of money like let's just say someone loves apparel and they they have dreams i mean and i know that's not always the reason why someone would get into a business but is the money to be made on owning your own brand or running a large division i mean i'm guessing being a designer or the creative or whatever 
you might be fairly limited on compensation. Is there upside? Like, can you hit a home run in the apparel business? Well, you can. It's tough. It's, it's, you know, it's like anything, you know, go to Hollywood, be a great actor or actress. Well, you know, maybe, maybe you'll pull the golden ring. Maybe not. But, and, and the same thing with startups. Uh, one of the things that we have this in, at, at this time of, of the industry is there's a tremendous amount of new brands, new startups being able to build their business online. And, and so there's viable strategies on that. Usually, you know, if you can work the social media and marketing platforms, um, you have the potential to, to be explosive. Um, it's, uh, it's a new day. We went through a period of decades there before the internet and internet selling was really viable and, and affordable, uh, where these really ginormous companies like, like the Gap, American Eagle Outfitters, Abercrombie and Fitch, and, and, and then big brands like, let's say, Quicksilver, spread out and had stores in every mall in America. And, and you could find the same pair of board shorts in, in a Quicksilver store in Tokyo, as London, as Verbier, Switzerland, as, you know, down in uh, California. So, so that uh, was not a very, I'm going to say, inspirational period. Uh, to people. Um, but today, it, it appears there's more opportunity, I'm going to say, for people in the product development side of, of the industry and the production side of the industry with startup businesses that are based with online sales and marketing. So uh, the, the aspect of of the type of jobs that you that you can do, uh, I, I thought I would just kind of dive back into this a bit with design and development because there's two kind of big roles in design and development, and and it is the burden of design uh, and the detail of development, and if let's say you are a person and you're looking at a large company like the North Face or Patagonia or some other uh, uh, big global brand, that brand has a market position. And, and if you go to work, let's say designing product, you can't design necessarily what you want to do or what personally blows your hair back. It has to be something that's within the context of that market position of that company. And that works for that brand. And further than that, you have the burden of meeting the expectations, the promise of the brand. So if it's a technical brand that's famous for being 
technical and innovative and ergonomic and all that, uh, and you're coming out with some new styles, you definitely need to fulfill that promise uh, from a design standpoint. And further than that is, is that there's categories of product and price point of product. So, you know, you're going to have an insulated down jacket at $299 and you need to bring a new design that's going to fulfill the amount of business that's being done by an existing product there that maybe has been around for 10 years or 20 years or five years. And it's just kind of dwindling. But the company is like, hey, we need to bring a new design, fill it in here, but it can't just do a million dollars. We want it to do $10 million. So there is a burden of responsibility with working with these big brands to meet those, those uh, predetermined uh, needs uh, for the marketplace. So it, it, uh, you could come in and produce a design and the director's going to go, hey, I, you know, I don't think that's going to cut it. And the salespeople are going to go, I can't sell that much of that. Back to the drawing board. And, yeah. you know, there could be a bunch of iterations before you nail it. And everyone goes, hey, that I can do some business with. And, and if you don't nail it, well, <laughs> there's the door. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just listening to you, I would... I wouldn't do well in a big brand. Like I like to, I mean, you talk about architecture. I don't know if you've ever read the fountainhead, but it's one of my favorite books. And it, there's a character in Howard Rourke and he's an architect and he just does, does it in a completely new way. People don't like it, but like, I see myself as the Howard Rourke of the peril, but if I got into it, I like kind of like mixing it up, shaking it up. And so I think it's really good for people to hear this from crack because you have to understand your temperament and your personality type. And are you a, you know, like on the Enneagram, it's personality test. Are you a type four, like being an individual? You need to be able to be yourself. And if you're going into a big brand, there's nothing wrong with that, but you might be very limited in your creativity or your ability to express yourself. Um, one of the things before I forget crack that I wanted, you know, I've been doing a lot of watching a lot of podcasts. I've been really interested in AI. And there's lots of different feelings towards AI. Some people think it's not real. Some people are super alarmed by it. But I'm really interested in terms of how it's going to replace jobs and probably already, not probably, already has. Do you ever think about AI as it relates to the apparel industry? Well, just a little bit. Um, I mean, I don't have to think about it too much. Um, it's uh, we have had, you know, certain companies that I'm going to say are out there with product uh, more than ready to wear market, but they're building jeans, they're building dress shirts, they're building a variety of things. And they'll say, hey, put your iPhone down, follow this procedure and we'll be you know, three times closer to your size than a, than a tailor will. I, personally, being someone who grew up having to figure out how to work with patterns and all that and geometry of 
putting something around a body, I don't really buy that. And also knowing the nuances of good tailoring, okay, like when we're talking about really nice suits and, and all that, uh, it's, uh, there's a lot, it would take an awful lot more of to, to achieve what I think they're saying they can do. So that's sort of one side. You get into artificial intelligence where maybe it's going to take a look. Maybe you plug in a bunch of websites and, and you know, a thousand different brands, and then it comes back to you and says, this is what the new popular colors are going to be for next year. And these are the silhouettes you need. And these are the price points you need to, to hit. Uh, it, uh, I think it's probably doable to, to have that, but it's, is it scary? Uh, no. Is it coming? Probably. It'll be interesting to see. Data is a, is a funny thing. You know, you, you, if, if in, in the apparel industry, if you're on the, what I'm going to say, the director level, where you're making decisions about how to build your business, how to direct the designers to design stuff that's going to fulfill and sell and, and make customers happy and meet the needs of what customers are asking for. When you're on that level, there's a lot of data to look at, but you got to be careful. You might go, oh, wow, black is our biggest seller. Well, yeah, but maybe there was a super special event that sold a ton of black with uniforms on an industry level. And really, that wasn't your biggest seller. It was just that one event, that blip for the year. Um, you can look at the whole market and 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 go wow you know this is this is where all the business is it's all over here uh i'll give an example is that and when i came with heli hansen and the assignment was to provide them with a contemporary snow sports collection that would appeal uh to new skiers younger skiers snowboarders, the twin tip generation that was starting at that time. Uh, new school skiing was a phrase being coined then along with, with snowboard culture. We went out and of course the salespeople, our bookkeeping accounting folks were just like, give us black, give us black, we need black. But the retailers were like, look, you wanna sell me something? Don't show me black. If I if I need black, I'll get it from the North Face and I'll get it from Burton. What I need from you is something else, something different. Bring me something that is like fresh, new, different. I can bring in. Don't bring me black. Uh, so we did a very dark gray. We called it almost black. We sold truckloads of it. The retailers are like, wow, that's like a fresh new black. Love it. 
That's interesting. Um, so I, it's it's I don't I don't AI is not going to give you that type of data to work on. I, I I don't I don't see it fulfilling uh, what's happening with human nature and and market positions. It it it's it's but you know you got a long ways to go. Yeah, I just was reading it's already starting to uh I don't want to say replace but models like they you can design any kind of look, you know, and I'm thinking like for selling apparel instead of having real live people modeling your stuff. Um I don't know, who knows. I just wanted to throw it out there. It's an interesting conversation. Um yeah. as we wind down, can you just not the, the the obvious, but is there something like you know, you've been in the business for a while, you've got amazing experience. Is there any major surprise of something in the business that you just absolutely love? And one maybe that you didn't like, like something like you don't like about the business that like, <laughs> that isn't something that you read in a job description, something that came with blood, sweat and tears and a lot of experience. And the reason obviously is I want to, I want to give some wisdom and insight into someone who's at the beginning of their stage and getting into the business and maybe you can kind of expedite the learning curve for them okay so i'm i'm going to talk about culture of, of different companies uh for a bit and and we all kind of have we're all sort of a different sort of bird right and and finding your flock is is definitely very helpful uh there are jobs are more under fire you know we talked about like the design and creative position that you have to bring it or you're going to be out the door you know you have to you have to fulfill it and and that's not just bringing the right product but it's also being able to present it properly present it in a manner that the salesmen are sold on it. The management is sold on it. They used to say that if with a new product, you have to sell it five times. You have to sell it to your, your, your first level of management. You have to sell it to executive management. You have to sell it to the sales force. It has to be sold to the retailer store and then eventually to the consumer. And, and, so uh, that process is very different depending on different companies' cultures. If you're a participant in any part of that process, um, that culture can really affect how you enjoy your, your job or, or your position. So, um, if we look at a, a smaller company, you know, typically there may be an owner such as myself and my wife and, and you know, we have a strong opinion and, and that flows. And if, if you're working with that, then that works great. Um, if you're in a very large corporate envi environment, there could be a whole diverse amount of opinions and it's trying to create you know, some type 
of, I don't want to say compromise necessarily, but to get everyone on board with a, with a certain concept. And then pushing that forward and keeping it on track all the way, all the way through the process. So there are, there are different needs. There's a lot of, I'm going to say, uh, really successful career designers that are, they're not changing the landscape with design. They're, they're, they are more revising and refinement. They're on the revising and refinement side of the business. And they can have nice long careers uh, working with large corporate companies because they're, they're not presenting anything that's revolutionary that, that really has to be sold. And, and they're good at, at fielding and responding to uh, this, this large sorts of, of opinions and moving, moving things through the process. But where that won't necessarily work for a smaller company that, that may be, or a company that is rebuilding a division, uh, you know, like the Helly Hansen example, where it, okay, you, if you don't necessarily need this brand, but we got to come up with some reason that the retail stores are going to take one brand off the shelves and put ours in its place. And that takes something special between the design, the engineer, the developer, and the director of, of that division, that category division. Something about what they do and how they work with the salesman to reinvent a product that the retailer says, wow, wait a second, you, you brought me a new purpose. You brought me a reason to, to risk taking this other brand off the shelf and putting, putting you in, in its place. So um, you, you kind of have to look at, 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 are you a person that wants that level of responsibility, that level of dynamic and being exposed to success or failure with it? Or are you a person that, you know, wants to flow the team a little bit more uh, have a more secure position uh, with demands that maybe aren't as uh, uh, rigorous. And, and different companies, you can take a look from the outside and look at the culture and kind of, kind of judge like, is this a company whose product is like old and stale and they really need someone to come in and, and innovate and meet the promise of the brand, like that's going to be a tough job, you know. Am I going to last there? Am I going to bring it, uh, or you know, are they going to shut me out the door and try somebody else next year? Uh, or is it is it a brand that's like, hey, here we just need someone who shows up every day, does good hard work, diligent on the details. And make sure that in the process it's like 100% complete, and and we move right along with it. So you, you have some different cultures to look at and identify. Yeah, I mean that's a great 
Correct. That's, I mean, that's the stuff that I really want people to think about is look beyond the apparel company or the brand and understand the culture. And then even look beyond that and try to understand you and how you would deal or interact within that culture. And I don't think to be quite honest at 25, I was thinking about that personally. Um, I'm, I'm a total individual. I like my freedom. I don't really have a boss. I'm a self starter and I didn't know these things at that age, but what you've shared is really valuable because you might be just seeing some people see dollar signs, some people just see fashion, but it can be A to Z on what that experience might be like based on the culture, the brand, et cetera. Um, we're running out of time here. And I always ask this question at least two questions. One is where, where did you go to, uh, you came out of, is it Bellevue high or Interlake? Uh, Bellevue High School. Okay. Marines. And then was it, you said Tillicum or where, where'd you go before that? Uh, Chinook Junior. Oh. Okay. I was Hayek. We were in the same uh, league. So then after, just curious, I didn't, I don't know if I asked you this before, after college or after high school, where did you go? University of Washington. Okay. So you're a Husky. Okay. So yeah. were you in a fraternity, by the way? No. Okay. Uh, I just... I lived just across the lake from the school. So I was literally about two and a half miles away. Uh, in where, Bellevue? Uh, yeah. Yes, the Medina uh, to be a little bit more yeah. specific. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, could, I did too. I, could, I went to UW and I lived, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, yeah. My mom my mom and dad split up. We rented a little house on 84th, which is the road along Overlay Golf Course. Yeah. And we we're yeah. in Anatai. So <laughs> I, I was in a fraternity, but I wasn't a big fan of living with 90 dudes. So I'd go home like every weekend and spend the night at my, you know, our little rental. Um, but sounds like you and I had a different or similar experience there. Yeah, I, I, uh, I really, I mean, fraternities looked like a blast, looked like a lot of fun, but I, in my life, I had certain sort of goals that I wanted to do. Part of it was a lot of skiing, uh, and I was involved with teaching and coaching and then, and then moving up the food chain there with, uh, leading clinics, uh, you know, Drew and I were supervisors for, uh, for freestyle programs that we had created, um, and so there, I didn't have really a lot of free time. And so I, I didn't, for me, it was like, I don't want to be in a party environment. I, I'll, I'll choose when I've got time to go to a party. Uh, but so I didn't want to be in a fraternity and I, I didn't uh, want the expense of it either. And my parents were really happy to have me around. Uh, they didn't want to get rid of me. You know, they found me entertaining or, or whatever. So <laughs> no, that's I, was, I was very welcome in the homescape and we all got along great. So, so that was just fine. No, that's awesome. So you come out yeah. of UW. The question is, if crack was a start over, I know that like a lot of the, your experiences led to where you are today, but knowing what you know now, would you have taken, would you have deviated at all from your path or would you have jumped into something right away just based on your knowledge? Well, no, I think I, the, the different things I studied worked out well for 
my career. Uh, and really what I was doing is, I mean, I was skiing and my athletic side was progressing, but I didn't, I didn't expect to like get on the U.S. ski team, convert on, compete on the World Cup, end up doing films with Warren Miller and the mobile ski team and traveling around the world. I, I never expected any of that. I, I didn't think of myself really as an athlete. Uh, it was just, skiing was just a sport I loved, and I'm just I'm just trying to get better at it. That's all. And so my career goal had to do with film uh, and cinema. And there was not a film or cinema courses at the University of Washington. So uh, I had taken a lot of drama, a lot of theater when I was in high school. Uh, I was in some of those programs at the University of Washington. My plan was to get a Bachelor of Arts degree and then move to Southern California and go to film schools and just dive into the whole uh, industry. And I wanted to be in, in um, cinematography, direction, and production. I was interested in building and making, making films. So, so that was the orientation. And then as I did better and better in skiing, in competition, it sort of pulled me away from that plan. And then all of a sudden, my little cottage ski wear business took off, became a real company. And then that took off. And suddenly I had a career in apparel. And uh, I just stuck with it. So um, I... I still think that maybe, you know, particularly now with digital media and, and videography and stuff like that, I still look forward to some time when, when I'll do some personal project uh, and do a film. But uh, uh, I, I feel a little bit incomplete in that, in that sense of wanting uh, to express myself in that. But I, it's it's been a great career. Uh, I've worked with a lot of great brands and super talented people, and learned a ton. Uh, so it it's been a it's been a lot of a lot of fun, uh, and and a lot of uh, gratification of achievements. So I don't know that I would change anything there. Um, not, I mean, certainly not education wise as far as, I mean, there's a couple of classes I probably would not go back to at the University of Washington, but. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. Um, and I, I think I know the other question just based on what you said and just previous conversations, but if there was a dream job, uh, I have a feeling it would have to do deal, deal with something in cinema or movies, making movies, producing, directing. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was one other question. Oh, you know, I always like to ask this because like, you know, you're very accomplished at skiing and you rub shoulders with some of the best in the world, I would assume. Like, is there a, is there a freestyler? Let's just take aerials out of it in ballet, a bumper, yeah. a mogul, a mogul guy or gal. Is there someone that you think, like I asked Drew the same question, but who do you think is the best you've ever seen or competed against? Well, 
what the what comes to mind is is uh, Mikhail Kingsbury, uh, the mogul skier, the Canadian mogul skier. His it, it's interesting, you know, because uh, uh, Schifrin, uh, Michaela Schifrin, uh, you know, is is hitting all kinds of new records in racing and all that, and uh, and it's great. It's fantastic. And she is, you know, one of the best skiers of all time. And of course, one of the best skiers on the planet, period. You know, any gender you look at. So, uh, but no one talks about Kingsbury. And I want to say he's got something. I don't know what his current record is, but uh, over 70 World Cup wins in mogul skiing. And He's 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 just a, a phenomenal athlete. I do not know him personally. I've never skied with him, but I'm definitely a fan. So. Yeah, <laughs> I always liked that. Uh, I think his name was Jeremy Bloom, but he was a yeah college football player and a mogul guy. And I I was those are my two of my things I love doing. Uh, Drew thought it was uh, Mosley was his guy. Um, is that right, Mosley? Yeah, Johnny. Johnny, yeah. but, um, you know, and I, I'll ask you this just because I'm curious, like I'm always, I'm not critical. I'm not judgmental, but freestyle has changed so much in terms of fall line. And, you know, it's such a, uh, manufactured, you know, this is where you're going and they're going so fast. And when they hit the bump or the aerial, I mean, they're going so fast. What they do is extraordinary. Yeah. I've always, I've always wanted the old freestyle bump skiing to come back because where you don't know where you're, you know, you might go and you might kick you out and then you have to pick a new fall line what's your thought like to me it seems very robotic the bump skiing not the aerials but the bump part do you have a thought on that well i i i think there's arguments for both things uh, uh certainly my kids talk about they refer to it as wild moguls and how the, and and they'll say wild mogul skiing like back in the day dad that's that's so cool. That's the cool one. That's the organic skiing wild moguls. And I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of laughing, but I know it's a great it's it's a great interesting viewpoint of of people in their 20s. Uh, there have been some resurrection of wild mogul ski competitions and around the country. Uh, particularly right before COVID. It'll be interesting to see if they come back. There is discussion amongst, I'm going to say, my age peers in regards to, oh, it's kind of sad to see mogul skiing so defined into this narrow, narrow portion. And we don't see people skiing moguls anymore. And I go, well, I, I, I have a theory on that. And basically, my theory is that, you know, if you watch the racers out on the course and, and you watch our, our heroes and, and World Cup racing and all that, you can go out on a beautiful groomed ski run on a resort and just carve up that slope at high speeds and emulate what you're watching. If you're watching those mogul skiers ski in this confined course and you want to go and, and like give it a try, you can't. 
That's a lockdown course. You can't get in there. You're not allowed. And it discourages, that sort of thing discourages that, that the mogul skiers of today that are competing are constantly just in those closed courses. My theory is if they get out into the wild moguls on the mountain and ski the mountain that and are back underneath the chairlift lines ripping it up, it's going to continue to attract people like yourself, people like me, that there, there's a certain pleasure to mogul skiing that's, that's uh, rhythmic and exciting and, and the ability to get air uh, and the speed mm-hmm. is uh, very gratifying. And I think it would rebuild the sport. But I think as long as the coaches and athletes stay in the confined courses, it's the general public and, and, and younger skiers are not, they don't have the mentors to follow. You know, I yeah. certainly followed after the Gordy Skoogs of uh, in in my time and Eddie Ferguson and and these other skiers that we saw skiing moguls. And then you came following after me, watching me ski moguls. And I don't think there's any end to that. I don't I don't think it was a cultural shift. I think I think it was just this move pulled it away. So but you can go to the you can go to the park and the pipe and you can drop in there. So um, yeah. drop in on the mobile course. So you're right. Like when I moved to Sun Valley not long ago, right under one of the uh, chairlifts, it's just all fenced off, roped off. And, you know, they had the bump competitions. I have a f- old girlfriend, her nephew was in the Olympics last time. Uh, Cole McDonald, I think is his name. And uh, I just, uh, I'm amazed. So I'm definitely not judging. I just, I don't mean the crazy cowboy freestyle where you're like almost falling off. I, I I just like the free, the freedom of not just this manufactured bump, 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 bump. Right. Um, that's just a preference of mine, but you mentioned real quick, Gordy, Gordy was a, um, Gordy's a guy that I know he, he was married to an old teacher of mine and just fabulous. So are you like, I don't know how to ask this. Are you in that same group as Gordy? Like I always associated like you and Gordy and Drew and like, was he older than you or younger than you? Yeah. Well, yeah. Gordy's older than me, but his brother Lowell is my age. We went to school together and we lived about a block away from each other. So, and Lowell has got the same sort of build as I do. So we're even at that point where sometimes Pope, People would come up to him and say, hey, crack, or they'd come up to me and say, hey, lol. But Gordy was older and 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 Gordy competed. Uh, he was in the films. Uh, you know, he was definite and, and an excellent athlete, one of one of the best technical mogul skiers during his time, and certainly a mentor for me who passed on to me you know, things in occasional coaching that, that were so valuable, uh, for my development as an athlete. So, um, uh, Lowell and I lived, lived together with Drew in the mountains and, uh, but Gordy was, was one we always looked up to 
and, you know, tried to emulate Narskine, you know, the control yeah. and the technique and, and uh, his quiet upper body and yeah. things. Gordy was, uh, I told you this story, but I was in Sun Valley, I think in high school. And I remember he was on a chairlift and I was skiing bumps. And so I saw him at the bottom of the hill and he's like, your left pole plant. I mean, he was so good at like figuring out what the hell is wrong. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, it wasn't my Boda bag or my cowboy hat or my mullet. It was my left, <laughs> left pole plant, but he was very technical. Um, but just a great dude. I remember him at Olympic sports going in there and, and always enjoyed him. He always reminded me of you too. Just, I mean, I always thought, I, I thought he was tall, you know, slim, but he always seemed, I'm like, when I thought of him, I thought of you and I don't know if I'm off, but anyway, I, uh, I'm rambling at this point, crack, but is there anything before we say goodbye that you feel compelled to say to the audience and just like helping them get clear on choosing their life work? It, uh, well, if you're looking at, if you're, if you are looking at the apparel industry, um, I would, uh, I would encourage you to think about where you want to be decades down the road and, and, and what your, your big plan is. Um, and the big plan could be, I'm going to go here to get experience and I'm going to get this type of experience because I want to do this and then move to that or go here, uh, where you want to live, what type of experience you want to have that way. Um, the, the one thing I would say is, is when it comes to compensation, it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid. It doesn't matter what the deal is. What matters is, is the cost of living where you are and what you have to bank at the end of the month. So, you know, if you get a job in San Francisco, it seems to pay a really big salary, but the cost of living is super high. It, it's all about what you bank at the end of the month. You know, you may find yourself doing much better someplace like Wisconsin or Michigan or something. Uh, and of course it depends, you know, how you want to live, you know, what, what type of lifestyle uh, you want to have. So. Yeah. And you're, you spend most of your time in Tahoe and maybe San Diego. Uh, uh, I'm kind of, well, most Probably, yeah, Tahoe. Like I'm speaking to you from Reno, Nevada. Okay. Uh, right now, but I do spend a lot of time in Washington and Oregon. Okay. You know, mostly, mostly in, in, in the summertime, I'm up there. So, well, when you come up, I'd love to have you up to the farm. We can um, meet, you, we can introduce you to the goats and the pigs and the chickens <laughs> and all that. That's kind of our lifestyle Brilliant. right now. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fun, man. Uh, yeah. Crack, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, I know you're a humble guy, but you were, you were big in my life at a young age when a lot of guys, you know, they need good examples of older guys. And, and you were certainly one of the, the ones I remembered. So I want to thank you for coming on. And I think you are great. I think a lot of the advice you gave is very helpful. And I think it could potentially change lives as far as having people, helping people choose the right career. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, you're absolutely welcome, Dirk. And, uh, it's a pleasure to do this with you, and uh, I, I, I'm honored that my participation 
when you were younger was a value that that uh, I do try to have that in my life. Uh, our product line here is about giving back to the community. In that, you know, we're creating something that provides protection and elevates people's experience. So uh, I'm glad you you had that you had that experience, and I, and I very actively. Uh, still coaching today. So um, we just finished our coaching season here, but the resort is open for another three months. We've got Co some, coaching, know. like coaching skiing? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a big mountain uh, free ski coach uh, for the Palisades Tahoe, the resort formerly known as Squaw Valley. Um, and uh, and we have uh, we have a great team of of athletes, both uh, sport team and and competitive team, they've uh, made quite a quite a impression globally on the junior freeride community for for a decade now. So, so you still got it? <laughs> Not yeah. Um, well, listen, I'm going to let you roll, and uh, thank you again. You were awesome, and um, it's yeah, I'm I'm honored to have you on. So, thank you. You're welcome, Dirk. Okay. Have a good day. Bye now.